0: In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition, it's intuition, which is really based on just
1: experience with everyday objects that suggest
0: reasonable explanations for things.
1: Welcome to Two Shrink's Pod. My name is Hunter Mulcair.
0: And I'm Amy Donaldson.
1: And this is a podcast all about psychology. So currently we're in our summer programming vibe. And tonight we thought we would do something a little bit different. Normally on this podcast we choose a topic, a disorder, therapy modality and have a good long discussion about that. But what we wanted to do was just sort of take a bit more of a relaxed approach to, well, the last couple of episodes in this episode as well. And coming up we're going to have some uh, interviews coming your way on the podcast feed shortly but tonight what we wanted to do was to talk a little bit about well essentially to interview each other about the work that we do clinically Amy and I see eye to eye on how to do things and sort of a treatment philosophy kind of way but we work very differently and we work with different populations and What we've noticed on the pod is that we often diverge into discussing this and we've actually had a number of listeners contact us and ask us a bit about some of the work that we do and some of the background and we thought perhaps why don't we just have a proper conversation about it. So this will be a little bit similar to our episode, you can't ask a psychologist that, but it's just be Amy and I interviewing each other about, you know, the work that we do, Hmm. that kind of thing
0: and as always if you like what we do please rate and review us on itunes or wherever you find your podcasts we also love hearing from listeners so contact us on twitter which is Shrinks pod or send us an email to pod at gmail.com you can also go to our website which is twoshrinks pod.com and that has all of the episodes and then things gripped into topics if you're after a particular thing as well as a bit more about us
1: So the structure of this episode is going to be like this. What we're going to do, Amy's going to ask me about what I do Mm -hmm. on a day-to-day basis and then she's going to ask me whatever burning questions that she's got about the way in which I work and then we're going to flip that around and I'm going to ask her some Mm -hmm. of that kind of stuff. So, you know, if you're not interested in hearing me talk, flip forward. I don't know how long it's probably going to be. Six hours. I do edit myself out quite a lot, <laughs> I have to say. And, um, and and then probably at the end, we're going to ask a couple of questions just of each of us. It should be interesting. Amy, take us away.
0: Okay. So first of all, can you describe day in the life of your job? You know, so what's a day like in the hospital for you?
1: So uh, I'm a a psychologist. I work in a radiation Mm center working with cancer patients. I guess the main role or jobs that I have are triaging referrals. So dealing with requests from staff members to see a particular patient. Mm -hmm. They will be having treatment and they're having a particular problem. And assessing, you know, who needs to be seen, when they need to be seen, is, is my service the right venue for them, should it be somewhere else, that kind of thing.
0: Is it always your colleagues who send you people or do sometimes the people say, hey, I want to see a psychologist or...
1: Yeah, definitely some people will say, look, hey, they'll approach a staff member and say, look, I need... You know, Mm. I would like to speak to somebody. Okay. Or they'll have people, or staff members, will notice something's up. Or we would, you know, someone will do a screening of a particular patient, and through that process, right. So doctors, nurses, admin staff, sometimes.
0: And day to day, you in the hospital? Are you in? Like yeah I a work in a, outpatient yeah. environment I, or work in a, I
1: work in an outpatient environment. sometimes I work, I go across and see patients who've been ad- admitted to the medical wards, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we so there's that component, and then I guess seeing any patients that I've got booked in, I usually see them for about an hour. In some cases it'll be shorter depending and what's going on, that kind of thing. So these are people who are actively getting uh, cancer treatment.
0: Okay. Yep. yeah and then I'm assuming there are mountains of paperwork and follow up and stats, yep. and yeah yeah all yeah. the fun stuff no one tells you about when you're going to become a psychologist i do
1: I don't mind writing clinical notes, yeah you know there's a volume of other you know hospital administration that I think is unavoidable mm. that that can be you know a bit of a drag at times, but yeah, you know writing reports is a really, really important part of being a psychologist mm. you that might not seem that obvious but being able to communicate effectively around what's happening with a patient Mm. and having that for other people to refer to Mm. is a really important role of a psychologist in pretty much any setting i reckon
0: yeah it makes a pretty big difference sometimes Mm. Mm. so one of the things when we were preparing for this that i kept on coming back to was about how briefly you see people sometimes so what would be the average or what's the span of time that you see people
1: Um, frequently I'll only see people for one or two sessions, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on the length of their treatment and what's going on for them. I reckon around three, three sessions is a common, probably a common number. So then there'll be a small group of people who will, uh, I'll see maybe six times. Mm. So usually what I say to people is "I'll, I'll see you during your treatment and then I've got capacity to see you a little bit afterwards. Okay. And then there'll be a small group of that, that I will for whatever reason we'll work together for a longer period of time Mm. but predominantly like it's short-term work okay that's sort of what you're curious about right yeah you work in a much longer way longer fashion
0: yes like i would do an assessment for three sessions so i can potentially assess someone for longer than your full contact with them is which i find fascinating
1: what do you find fascinating about that
0: i think it's that it's a completely it's a different way of working it's, you know, I have the luxury at the moment of being in a role where I can do that kind of comprehensive assessment. I haven't had that before and it's been quite nice to be able to do. But I think the idea of meeting someone, building that rapport, assessing what's going on for them and providing treatment all in one or two sessions yep. is is a lot and there's not much wriggle room there yep. for, for anything to go awry or to kind of sit, sit with things. Yep. So how do you manage that?
1: When you say manage, like, what do you mean?
0: Yeah, like how do you work out what it is that you might be doing and how much you're going to sort of bite off and where you're going with it when you know that it might only be once or twice that you see this person.
1: Yeah. I think – so, you know, I work with people who are either – having curative treatment for cancer, you know, they are being diagnosed with cancer, they're actually having treatment for it Mm. and they're in a difficult spot and that difficult spot might be to do with the cancer per se. Like they're very afraid of it, they've got difficult decisions to make or, you know, they've kind of got a situation with cancer that might sound a bit strange to say but it's sort of run of the mill Mm. But they've got a very complex social situation or a social or personal history or whatever it is. And I think... You know, I think I very much have a role of in the hospital, you are aware of that you're part of a process mm. and that I think initially when I started, I was like, I'm going to fix people. Right. But I think now I've much better understanding of, well, what my role is, is to assess mm. and to treat, try, trying to figure out what someone wants to address and what's reasonable to address and, you know, understand that these people are on a journey. Mm. Uh, and
0: that you're not going to be the only support they engage with nope, in that nope. process. This isn't the one opportunity you might then send them off somewhere else.
1: Yeah, you can definitely do that. Frequently you are the only one though.
0: Yeah, um, like the only psychology that they come in contact with. Yeah, yeah. I and mean,
1: there are supports. I think what's different is that there's the commonality is that they all have a problem mm. that's cancer. Mm. And so you can pivot off that and yeah. so you can always look at that get them to talk about that or address you know you know what your role is is to help them get through treatment hmm. and then anything else beyond that i think is beneficial yeah. right if that's that kind of thing
0: so you're there to help with that with coping with that stressful period yeah. and with what they might need to do that yeah and then the other stuff kind of comes later.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think, so I think, when, you, I think when you have someone who's got a complex situation, mm. so they might have a history of trauma that they've never talked about with anybody or they've got, you know, really, really complex family dynamics mm. or really, really, you know, like they've lost their job, they're looking after elderly parents or a disabled child and they've got, you know, a diagnosis of uh, likely to kill them mm. in a couple of years' time or that kind of stuff. You know, there's just so much to deal with there, and so I think you you're very aware that you can't actually fix all of that, and so it kind of I feel liberated somewhat. Mm. It's like, okay, well, what is it? What do we need to do at the moment? And I think
0: it sort of strips it back to what's important.
1: Yeah, and I think also knowing that in the hospital system, they might I might be the first person they've spoken to properly, Mm. and you know, a psychologist gives a patient a long stretch of time just to talk, Mm. and so I think, does that sort of answer your kind of question? It does,
0: yeah. I'm immediately thinking of the ways that both that could be beneficial and kind of invigorating that thing of going, well, I don't know who I'm going to meet today and where things are going to go. Yeah. And then also could be potentially frustrating or annoying if you've, you're working with someone and you have the opportunity to get into some of that longer-term stuff and then, you know, you can't see them for long enough to be able yeah. to do that work. yeah. Like, is that the case? Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: definitely. I think, you know, there are some people who, particularly when the rapport is good, mm. that and they're ready to address complex things, That that's when I'm a bit, you know, I might be a bit more like to my supervisor, like, um, I think I need to work. I've got some goals here. Mm. This person's got some goals here. And yeah. I think this is an important opportunity to do that. Mm. But I think, you know, there, there's a balancing act and... The more I hang on to someone, there's less opportunity for other people coming in. Mm. And, you know, we just have new patients every week. Yeah. And that need support. So...
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of have to be pragmatic. Yeah. And not be able to see everyone.
1: And I think, you know, probably over time, I I think I initially, I viewed psychology as like, you know, we cure and fix people, Mm. you know, and the analogy I used to think about is like, oh, you know, I used to think that we were like chemotherapy, we would... Potentially, you know, because chemotherapy can cure, cure cancer, right? Yeah. And now I think psychology is a bit more like Panadol. Mm. Like you know, we.
0: Yeah, I was thinking a mechanic. Yeah, and like that kind of you know, like we check in, help out with the current issue. Yeah, something might come up down the track. Yep.
1: And yeah. I think. I think also like learning to trust people, mm-hmm. like learning to trust in people, and and what's interesting in the in the cancer realm is that things are quite dynamic. In that you might see someone in one week hmm. and then a week or two later things will have changed yeah they might have got a scan result that was good or bad hmm. they might have uh, been very anxious about starting treatment they start treatment you work with them a little bit on that and then also like a natural process so, so you, you kind
0: know, of have to be ready for to go with whatever wherever it goes and yeah. wherever things might shift and knowing that that it might be an external factor that does yeah. that rather than what you're working yep. on yep. yep. so i
1: mean even even if you have someone who you work with long term mm. you get that dynamic component mm. to it that is far beyond your control as a therapist
0: is that part of what you love about it
1: yep i yep. think it's quite interesting i, th- I like the yeah. complexity like yeah. it's 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 in and in, in what's interesting like people a lot of people sounds like a humble brag it's not meant to be but a lot of people say oh you know i don't understand how you could do mm. working with cancer patients isn't that depressing or isn't that awful or That kind of stuff, but I think as a psychologist and as someone who very much loves psychology, the it's a very very alive setting. Mm. There's a lot of interesting psychological processes going on, and to witness that and to be part of that is quite interesting. And Mm. to kind of learn how to juggle that, yeah, I like I I always always really enjoyed it.
0: So you mentioned that people come for a range of different things and there's a bunch of different stuff going on for them often. What would be the main kind of issues that you work on? Anxiety. So about the cancer, about treatment? Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: So fear of cancer recurrence is Mm. probably the main thing. Like is this treatment going to work Mm. or will it come back? Mm. So I mean – and those two things can actually be different because you can – so some patients will be being treated for cancer and the cancer is still in them mm. and it's being treated. Whereas some people say breast cancer, they will have... the Most people with breast cancer, women with breast cancer, will have it cut out mm. when I see them and then they're having what we call adjuvant treatment. So there's like follow-up treatment to prevent it coming back. Whereas you might have some someone with lymphoma, for example, who the chemotherapy they're having is to get rid of the cancer mm. that's inside their body. Okay. So I mean, those two things might sound like sort of splitting hairs, a bit, but you. But the anxiety about is this going to work?
0: Mm.
1: How long have I got? Yeah. What's going to happen to my family, my kids? Mm. And then there's anxiety around treatment. What are the side effects? Am I going to be able to cope? Frequently, it's like, am I going to be able to cope? Yeah. And what paradoxically, what's interesting is you get people who they they will be really, really worried about how like the treatment side effects Mm. like i'm really worried about starting radiation and that i'm going to get all the side effects the doctor told me Mm. what's interesting is they frequently they'll because they will get side effects yeah with radiation it's usually fatigue Mm. and maybe pain like a burn Mm. because you're getting like high dose radiation
0: in one area in one
1: area as soon as they get the side effects then their anxiety goes because Ah. they're
0: because it's not about the unknown yeah it's It's, not about the unknown this is what i'm dealing with yeah Yeah, so
1: so 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 that stuff's quite interesting, Mm. and then another kind of stuff is, is, I guess, processing. Mm. So with this uh, this nebulous term of adjustment. Yeah. Okay. So uh, there's a great article by. Brennan in two thousand and one in psych oncology. If you're a mm. access. very specific, <laughs> yeah, and it's about the adjustment to cancer, mm. and I guess this idea of people kind of incorporating what's happening for them mm. and incorporating that into their life yeah. and accommodating that, and so part amount. of that
0: sort of narrative, what their life is like and where that fits, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And if you think about adjustment in terms of becoming a parent, Hmm. right? So that's usually, becoming a parent is usually something that people want, Hmm. or at least one person (laughs) (laughs) in the relationship does. Yeah. And, but there is a process of adjusting to that and that's usually mm. a wanted thing. Mm. And that can take a while. Yeah. You know? The what's the most common complaint of a woman who's pregnant, Oh, the husband's not my husband's not taking taking this seriously or doesn't kind of get how important it is mm. to me. And that's because those the two people are on different trains of, of mm. adjustment processes, yeah. right? And so Compare that to say you got diagnosed with lung cancer Mm. or you got diagnosed with a brain tumour that's fatal or you've got diagnosed with, you know, breast cancer that's going to require six months worth of treatment and the loss of your breast, Mm. you know, those things and the loss of your hair, Mm. you know, like those things aren't wanted. No. And so to assimilate that and then...
0: And they're not changeable or they're not sort of something that you can choose to do something differently. You just have to go along with it and adjust to it it's a thing that's in your life
1: some people try and do things differently and they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll try and they'll they'll refuse treatment mm. and um unfortunately and um, you know they'll try and live a stress-free life and mm. eat, eat organic pomegranates or whatever yeah and frequently what happens is they they get referred to me when they come back in mm. with like a really bad cancer that could have been treated unfortunately yeah. so, which, which must really, be hard to say yeah i think that's pretty frustrating yeah i think because there's a bit of a if you'd if you done what the doctors had said, you mm. would have... You things know, might have been different. Things would have been different. Mm. But, I mean, I mean, that's sort of like a, a frustration of... We see so many people who lose mm. when they do the right thing. Yeah. So I think that there's a frustration in cancer clinicians mm. that, oh, you know, this was something we could have done something about.
0: So yeah. Think, there I was treatment available. We knew what we had to do. Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah. if someone gets referred to me like that, then I'm there for them. Like, mm. that's... It's not my agenda around other stuff, but, Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, complicated. I'm thinking as you're talking about stuff as well that you must have to have a chunk of medical knowledge around cancer to have some of those conversations yeah. or do you do refer everything back to the doctor or what do you do? If someone says like, you know, what are going to be the side effects? What's what's the likelihood that this will work? Yeah. Where do you go with that?
1: Uh, a mixture around sort of basic medical knowledge, then I'm quite happy to... I guess have a discussion. Mm. One of the common things is about like people say, Well, how does cancer spread? Mm. And so I'll have a discussion around, well, this is this is why we think it spreads and this is why people get their lymph nodes taken out when they have surgery and that so and helping them understand that. But a lot of you know, questions around like prognosis. Mm that's i kind of definitely defer to that mm. you, you if you talk to the doctors often enough yeah you understand how complex these things can be mm. around like some says like oh, how you know will the treatment work and blah, blah blah and i guess really if someone's asking that question you, you need to understand why they're asking that question mm. and so you need to So, someone, like someone's asking me about that so that sort of sounds like you're a bit unsure or like yeah. what have they told you mm. one of the jobs as a hospital psychologist is frequently to help patients advocate for themselves yeah
0: that's what i was thinking about whether sometimes they asked you questions that they didn't feel like they could ask otherwise or yeah. that they kind of needed more information and didn't or clarify they'd... at the time or they didn't yeah so yeah
1: a lot of cancer patients will see their doctor mm. and then later on think about things. oh hang on mm. and so you might need because it's a
0: shock Or it's, yeah, new information that's kind of overwhelming or confusing, new terminology.
1: Yeah, that kind of thing. and and, Or, you know, it might take you a little while to process. Like, hang on, that doesn't make any sense to me or whatever. So, you know, there's a lot of conversations around about why don't you bring someone into the appointment Mm. or why don't you write questions down before you go and write them down as you go. Mm. Or they might be socially anxious and so they might not want to, you know, is it okay if I ask this question? You're like, yep, definitely. So there's a bit of a mixture of a role but like I think you need to have good understanding as a, as a psychologist in a hospital of the medicine mm. and biology just so you can understand what's going on. And, and
0: probably as well to know who it is that's you know presenting to you and what actually their status is health-wise yeah. as well, to know whether you're sitting across from someone who is going to be okay once they've been through this treatment. Or, or not, not. And not? How realistic
1: they are? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It would feed into how you understand their right level of anxiety.
1: Yeah, but also like their level of denial mm. or avoidance. Yeah. So someone might say, "Oh, yeah, I'm totally like." You might see somebody and like, "Yeah, I'm totally fine. This is great. You know, I'm going to totally beat this." Blah blah blah, mm. blah. But if you didn't understand, oh, that was stage four breast cancer. Yeah. Then you, which would mean it's incurable. Mm. Um. Yes, it can be treated, and people can live a long time with that, but. But, but eventually. at the state of medicine it is, mm. it, it, it won't be cured or, or whatever it might be. Mm. If you don't understand that, then you could get, you know, you might not understand that this person is in a state where they're not accepting where they're at. Or mm. the converse is like you might have someone, I certainly had a patient where I worked with her for, for quite some time and she was so anxious, mm. s- extremely anxious and, you know, advocated for this prophylactic surgery to remove her body body parts to... Reduce her risk of cancer, and then mm. at some point I went back and looked at her history and realized she had like really, really, really low risk of it. Everything right. like ninety-five to ninety-seven percent of people mm. would would but nev- she was so be, anxious. Would be cancer-free, and, yeah. You know, and so if you don't understand that, then you can not not do a good job mm. as a hospital. You psych. can
0: misread things. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about a few times on the pod, or you've made comments, particularly the most recent recent one. You did a diatribe on ACT. Yeah, yep. yep. What kept on coming into my head when you were asking me what kind of questions I had for you was that it feels like a lot of your work involves acceptance and sitting with what things are.
1: Yeah.
0: How does that fit with not being that into stuff like ACT?
1: So do you want to explain what ACT is?
0: ACT is acceptance and commitment therapy. So one of the the core tenets of it is accepting where things are and kind of incorporating that into your life. Mm. And that's kind of the message that comes through with some of the stuff that you've mentioned about sitting with where, where things are at, the reality of where, where mm. things are at. Yeah. And I find it interesting that someone who's you know, not a fan of that, of that approach is then drawn to work that really has that element to it of yeah. like that has to be part of it. How's that work? How do you reconcile those two things? Oh,
1: this is where I wish I had done more reading on ACT and I'd have a better... <laughs> look I'm not I'm not sure I think I think the problem I have with act and, and you know people might listen to this and go, actually hunter, you're doing act therapy mm. is that I f- worry with acceptance, and commitment therapy's got this big component of mindfulness, mm. and there's this big kind of you know you've just gotta sit with what things are and like you know nothing is neither good or nor bad. Mm. it just is, and you know it's the way you think about it and blah 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 and that I have a problem with yeah. because I think in cancer...
0: Like Some things are shit.
1: It's shit. Mm. It's shit to, to have a brain tumour. Mm. It's shit to have a mastectomy. Mm. It's shit, shit to, to be told you're not, gonna not going to keep on living. Yeah. see your daughter turn 21 Yeah, when she's 17. Yeah. There, so I think there's a lot of that which I don't like the kind of we just have to think about it in a different manner. Mm. I think, you know, we need to grieve. Yeah. So I probably do work a lot know, in, in a sort of, a, I think where I like act is that there is a focus on general therapy skills mm. that are applied to a whole of stuff, yeah. And general, general therapeutic processes, and, yeah. You know, and I think mindfulness is helpful for some people, mm. but i i I don't, I don't like it when it's dogmatic, yeah, yeah. Um, Fair enough. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, it does make sense because I am very yeah. I'm cognitively behavioral trained, yeah, and
0: and I think what we'll talk about later is how behavioral both of us are yeah. in. In our work, it's yeah, yeah quite heavily influenced. Yeah, because you yeah. you
1: you'd said something to me previously about that cancer is something that should make you anxious or it's hard to dispute that it's anxious yeah what was your question
0: often when you're working with anxiety in other settings it's that someone's anxious about something that might not happen or that might not happen to the extent that they think might be a phobia or something like that where it's kind of dangerous
1: or that yeah or that you've left the iron on or
0: everyone will hate me as soon as i meet them in social anxiety or whatever it might be but how do you work with it when the thing you're anxious about something like dying or going through painful side effects or not being able to parent the way you want to how do you deal with those things when they are going to happen
1: yeah good question i think the first thing that comes to mind is about you have to ask a lot of questions Mm. and not just go oh okay well of course you'd be anxious i mean and which but i do actually often say that to people." Because validating their anxiety is often something that paradoxically a lot of cancer patients don't get. They are told to be positive. Yes. Yeah. Um, but so, I mean, I think that if you, so conversation I had with some today, which is, you know, I say, well, it might sound silly, but what, you know, what are you miserable about? You know, I'm, oh, I'm going to die. Okay, well, what's bad about dying? Yeah. You know, oh, I won't see this happen. Okay, well, what would be bad about that? Mm. You know, and sort of trying, Teasing to, re- it apart. trying to tease it apart because y- there will be a part of it that will be true and mm-hmm. part of it will be not true in terms of that. So,
0: part of it will be a worry that uh, it doesn't fit with reality or with the extent of things, and yep. part of it will be entirely logical. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think there's that. Or understandable yeah. or something. Well, yeah.
1: I guess what I was thinking about is like, if you're worried about your relationship with your child Mm. and that you're not going to be there for them, right? Mm. Then that anxiety will be relieved if you can voice that Mm. and it will also be relieved by helping someone test that anxiety out. And so in some cases it might be, have you spoken to your wife about the fact that you're worried about her when when you die? Mm. Or it might be, if you're worried about how they're going to be in the future, is there anything you could do now?
0: Mm, to kind of cushion that or to kind of yeah. continue to be present in yeah. some way. or Yeah. yeah.
1: And so, so you can then easily see from a cognitive challenging perspective, mm. you could address that or you could do from a, a simple behavioral thing. Of like, oh, well, mm. I'll, I'll ask this person or I'll write a letter mm. or I'll – Record a video for them, or yeah. It or you might know, be. I yeah. worked with someone and they, she was going to die, mm. and so she was worried about one of her children who didn't have much money, mm. and she organised to give him money mm. so that he didn't have to wait for the will, and okay, that, and that there was no risk of it being lost on a contested will or something okay. like that. Yeah. And one of our last conversations was exactly. She was like, "I was so pleased I did that."
0: Mm. Yeah, that was what she needed to be able yeah. to move through that.
1: So, I mean, I think what, a lot of what you talk about is death anxiety. Yeah. And there's a great book, Staring at the Sun mm. by Yalom, Irvin Yalom, who everyone should everyone should read that book. Yeah, it's amazing. And that talks a lot about helping people address their anxiety about dying mm. and, and breaking that down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How much of your work would be looking at death anxiety?
1: I don't know. It depends. I think it's all, It's I think it's sort of, it's there. In the background. Yeah,
0: that's what it feels like to me that it would be just that it would be under the surface or kind of lurking as a possibility. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And often I think it's about a lot of your job is actually about teasing it out, mm. getting it getting it, bring it to the surface.
0: Yeah. Is that hard to sit with as a clinician? In what way. I don't know. That kind of that there's a human element of being worried about death and sort of sitting with that feeling. Um
1: I think in, there are some moments and mm. some people will affect you more.
0: Yeah. I'm assuming that's where it kind of comes from when people say, even psychologists, I couldn't work with that population. I think yeah. that's mostly what people are frightened of, yeah. that kind of having those conversations and sitting with someone who... Yeah. Who I yeah. think I
1: think the way I insulate myself is that, I, like, that I've seen people address it mm. and people don't need to be afraid. Yeah. They don't need to be hopeless that mm. they can't do anything mm. about stuff. And I think that people live, frequently live a better life mm. when they are more accepting yeah. of the fact that they, their time is short because mm. they live an enriched life.
0: Yeah, because they're trying to sort of fit fit things yeah. in and, and live the way they wanted to so, live. So, you know, yeah.
1: da- David Bowie, before he died, recorded an album, Sharon Jones, yeah. before she so that recorded an album. There's like numerous instances of uh, – Neil Young went for mm. – brain surgery and recorded an album before he had brain surgery there's numerous instances of people being and that's just being creative in music yeah of people going hey my time's short so i need to do stuff yeah
0: and you often hear about that even just anecdotally of people going oh my uncle or whatever was quite a harsh person and then they got this prognosis and all of a sudden this warmth came out or they were interested in family or whatever it might be yeah Yeah, and I think
1: that that stuff. I think the transform transformative component of working with serious illness is Mm. really, really like it's just when that happens, it's fascinating. Yeah, you know, I worked with a patient last year who it was a classic scenario where you'll get someone who has been struggling with some psychological issues and then gets a diagnosis of cancer. Mm. They're pushed out of their normal daily routine mm. for a period of time, a psychological issue gets noticed, you know, that they're emotional or whatever it might be. Mm. And then they get engaged with psychologists like myself. And then you deal with some of that stuff and then you might deal with, uh, all right, post-treatment, how, where are you at? What do you mm. want to do? And like, oh, my life is different now. And I've had a real experience of having a whole social contact and, you know, maybe I don't want to go back to the way I was. Mm. And, when that's harnessed, it's it's so fascinating to yeah. watch. And It'd be really
0: powerful to see. Yeah.
1: So I think yeah. you know, I think I think that's where some of my enjoyment with psychology and in psycho oncology comes from. Yeah. And I think being there with people in a in a difficult space, I mm. think it's quite. It 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 can be quite rewarding. So I think that's yeah. sort of how I insulated myself. I guess. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. That feels like a tough one to <laughs> end <laughs> on. <laughs> so I'm gonna add in one that I know. you feel (laughs) 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 because you make sarcastic comments about it. Do you ever feel like an imposter in that environment or not a real doctor?
1: Oh totally (laughs) yeah yeah, totally Does
0: anyone call you out on that or is it kind of
1: A a lot of the admin staff will call me doctor With um, a smirk? With a smirk (laughs) the ones that know me. Yeah it is funny that I make jokes about it sometimes Mm. So in the hospital you have a code blue which Mm. would be someone who needs
0: resuscitation needs resuscitation
1: right like and that I'd be like the worst doctor. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'd be like, you know, tell me,
0: yeah. tell me about your mother. You know, like yeah, a, yeah. Um, yeah. Is this an anxiety attack?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Give me yeah. three words to describe
1: yeah. your personality. Yeah. The, um, the, so, yeah, it is interesting mm. to be amongst very smart people. Yeah. And
0: but the flip side of that is that you have knowledge that they don't yeah or skills yeah Yeah. you know i work in community health and there's a mixture of allied health staff and gps and stuff like that and and psychiatrists and it always amazes me the things that they're interested that i know yeah it's kind of like what do you mean you don't know that like you forget what you know and
1: also like incidentally like a Mm. colleague of mine was working with the interpreter over a number of sessions and then like the interpreter Instead of something at the end, sort of saying, "Oh, you know, I've 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 learned so much just <laughs> by like coming to these these so sessions. Cute. <laughs> I really do love working in interpreters as well. In the hospital. Yeah, it's
0: so fun. Yeah, it's something that I feel like isn't talked about enough because mm. it is it's a whole other dynamic. Mm. It slows everything down. It really changes things.
1: I actually quite like it because it gives me a bit more time to think. sometimes.
0: yeah, yeah and you have to be more focused in what it is that you say. Yes, because it's kind of like, well, these words count." because it's going to take us a while to get them across and to get a response back, and we need to be clear.
1: But also you can't kind of bumble through and kind of go, but you know what I mean? And they go, yeah, I know what you mean, blah, blah, Mm, blah. It's like, no, because the interpreter will just translate you as as literally as possible. So we're going to flip it around now. So day in the life of a child psychologist. So, Mm -hmm. Talk to me about what's a, a regular day and like the standard type of client referral you get.
0: So frequently when I walk in the door, I see a client pretty much straight away the most fought for appointments are 9am and 4pm to interview with school the least. And so often it means that my days are bookended by clients and I don't get to do the usual, you know, checking your email, making a cup of tea, doing any of that sort of stuff, usually until about 11 um, by the time I've seen a couple of people. Yeah. So. Yeah, so I tend to have two intense bursts of client contact start and end of the day and then the middle of the day is paperwork, phone calls and referrals to other people. Uh, my sessions usually have a mixture of parent and kid or for the adolescents, it's just them on their own mm. and so it can be quite variable. In the space of a day, I might see someone who's 18 months old through to 17 wow. and it, it varies what they're what they're coming for. Lately, I've been trying to cluster my days a little bit so that I have an adolescent day and then a a kid day. Apart from anything else, the pragmatic side of things of having the right toys and materials out is one of the things. (laughs) It did secure me a regular office at my workplace because my manager saw me walking up and down hallways with those big blue IKEA bags full of toys because I'd have, you know, three kids in one room who so were different the ages the right and clinical the space is so
1: important like so and, important and what annoys me about working in the hospital is that we psychologists don't we don't need much stuff no like an mri machine yeah costs a lot of money yep right yep and all i need is a particular type of space maybe a whiteboard yeah and to get that is, is, it can be so
0: and ideally like dream world two comfortable chairs but and maybe not a fluorescent light overhead, but that might be asking for too much. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it tends to be quite busy. I see four or five clients in a day. Four's what I aim for. Yep. And then a lot of my time is talking to other people who are involved with those kids. So I work in an environment with complex presentations. So kids who have a mixture of trauma plus issues at school, family stuff. Um, other mental health stuff, it's kind of – it's quite a mix. And Mm. so often it's, okay, I've seen this kid. Now I need to email their teacher, work out a school visit, contact their GP, refer them to a play group, Mm. whatever it might be. So there's a a fair bit of case management kind of stuff in the role as
1: well. Yeah, that strikes me as different. I guess what I was Mm. interested about with this interview is understanding the differences with that. So the the, the – like I work with is like one-on-one – Occasionally I might get a family member in Yeah Very rarely is that an ongoing thing Yeah I might give some feedback to the treating team But often I'm
0: Often not Often not It is a different Yeah It's a different vibe And it's complicated Because there'll be different information That you can share with different people Yeah Some people you can't share anything with And sometimes you'll really want to be able to do that But they've said No, that's not okay And then there are other families who, you know, what tends to happen with kids is the ones who are really struggling, particularly the ones who are just entering school time, is that all of these services pile on. Mm. And so the initial referral might come from the maternal and child health nurse who stopped seeing them a couple of years ago, but now sees their sibling and has noticed that something's a bit off. And then you'll have additional information from a paediatric allied health team who's doing you know ot assessments and cognitive assessments and things like that and then you'll have a psychiatrist involved and a gp Mm. and often all of these people have come up with different diagnoses Mm. and it's interesting how often kids kind of collect these and they'll come in and say you know i have adhd so attention deficit hyperactivity disorder i have conduct disorder i have traits of autism i have depression i have anxiety and i'm dyslexic yeah right. and then when you actually sort of strip it back and do a proper assessment you find that there's one thing going yeah, on yeah, yeah. but it's just been that so many people have come at it from a different angle yeah. and have been scrambling to help and to kind of get in early enough yeah that then yes yeah, yeah,
1: i think i think with the cancer patients you get the busyness of people who are on treatment and mm and trying to fit you in can be a challenge. Yeah. And you can get some staff labelling people, but more often than not, this person's difficult Mm. or having difficulties. Yeah. And they'll label it as it's this or it's that. But it's it's a kind of... But it's it's not particularly... Yeah. It's not it's not as specific as I've got all these diagnoses. Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's interesting because it's either that end or it's the other end where it's they're just a bad kid.
1: Yeah. What I find interesting or my reaction is I would imagine there's a sense of urgency mm. of I've got to fix this kid mm. before they get to school, or I've got to fix them when they get to high school, yeah. or I've got to fix them before their personality is settled, mm. or before this problem because I work with adults is like, you know, you're just trying to try to minimise the impact of historical events. Mm. But these are the it's fresh events that are actually happening. Yeah. Prevent- preventable.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think that's tricky with the ones who have, you know, traumatic things happening right now Currently, in particular. Yep, those are the difficult ones. Those are the difficult ones because you know what the impact of that's going to be down the track. And then it's kind of how much can you do? I think often also the the urgency comes from the parents. So there's often a feeling of well, I've reached out for help and we need help right now and yeah. it's really important that you help my kid right now. Yeah. But the reality, sadly, when you ask the kids what's been going on is often they've been unwell for a couple of years. Yeah. Things have been deteriorating for them for quite a while and it's only that it's reached a point where they're usually doing something behavioural that someone else has noticed mm. and then help's been sought. So for them the urgency isn't there. It's yeah. just for the parents of you need to fix this new issue. Yeah, And, and also, also yeah. like
1: as a... Clinician working with somebody, if you present as rattled, Mm. more often than not, that doesn't work. Yeah. What's similar between yours and mine is, you know, you'll find people who are at sea Mm. and needing a steady hand on the rudder.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, there's a general feeling of being lost. This has gone outside what I can cope with. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you need to bring it back, which can be a tricky thing to, to sit with. But in terms of your question about speed... I think it is. I'm always torn between doing things quickly and doing things the right way or quickly. the way that's going to yeah. be effective. Yeah. And so I end up spending, doing a fair amount of groundwork explaining to parents that, you know, this is why I need you to be involved in the session or this is why. We need to speak to school, things mm. like that, to get things to a point of going, this isn't me deflecting or going, I'm not going to work with your kid. Mm. It's the best way to do this is by drawing on these supports.
1: Yeah. Your question's around like sitting with short-term work and I certainly mm. find that there's a way of assessing mm. and intervening in a single session. Yeah. But there is a tension thereof, particularly when you're working with someone longer term like mm. it's, it's so good to do a proper assessment it and is. i never really i've learned increasingly just the value of being mm. able to go you know what i'm going to assess you for two sessions yeah. like yeah you know, i'm going to set aside a portion of this session because i've realized i haven't got this bit of history mm. and i need to get it yeah
0: but it's hard with all of the practical things that go with that yep. like even you know from funding and stuff like that if you think about private sector or things where you in australia you're you know, funded for a, for ten sessions with a sort of gap fee between what's reimbursed by the government and what isn't, and if you've got ten sessions to work on something, there's pressure to get get moving. Mm. I think I'm lucky with where I am at the moment that built into our funding is they must have a thorough assessment and then. Fortunately, the training that they specified that was mandatory for anyone working with kids specifies that three sessions is the optimal assessment, mm. whereas they'd previously said one. Yeah. And so I was sort of able to go back and go, well, the training and the guidelines that you'd like me to follow say three. Yeah. So let's do three. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: How do you how do you work with a child that is inconsistent, like inconsistent <laughs> in their attention span? You've they all with, are. What? I guess my question is, I work with an adult, topics will vary but you can keep them for the most part on folk, on train mm. and you can weave things backwards and forwards but a child is just totally different. Yeah. I, I just, I'm just fascinated with that.
0: I think it's a little bit about having, I'll often have a common thread in mind of this session, there's going to be a particular theme or I'm going to follow what it is that they bring up and then the activities change around that but I'll keep on asking questions so the way that I tend to ask questions is quite casual and it'll be sort of something like you know we'll play Lego in silence for a little bit and then I'll go hey I was just thinking and then I'll ask whatever question it was and so for most of them you can kind of keep bringing them back to whatever it is that theme you've decided to work on is as long as the activities vary so they kind of need to be doing something that's Novel. different yeah. and you need to be able to hold in your head where you're up to <laughs> yeah. when then you change, change yeah, that thing. Well,
1: I, mean, I guess that, that makes sense. The thing I think about with people is that as they develop, they're more able to sit in a negative emotional mm. space yeah. and all those personality disorder topics we talked about on the pod mm. previously, group of those people, they're unable to, to sit in that uh, negative emotional space like uh, their peers would. Yeah, exactly. Um, Same with, like I say, with trauma. Mm. And you will have adults where you might have them only cry Mm. for one second in a 60-minute session. Mm. But that will be very, very powerful. Exactly. And progress is not measured in tears. No, we're opening the door and trying to get them to sit in that negative emotional space. Yeah, you're dipping in and out of it. Yeah, and just trying to get there a little, spend a little bit more time there, and see what's there, process it, that kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: And I think with kids, because there's so much play involved, that often you're processing things in a way that doesn't overwhelm them, and that is quite contained say for example there's something family violence going on at home you're not going to jump in with asking what happened when dad punched the hole in the wall yeah say with a five or six year old you might be playing with a bunch of different animals and things in a sandpit and you might act out one of the characters being grumpy and then usually they'll take over that and act out something that's similar so they'll act out you know a dinosaur punching or squashing Something in the sand. And then from that, then you'd reflect back to them and go, Oh, that dinosaur looks very grumpy. Well, that dinosaur looks really angry. What's he doing over there? And then they'll expand from that. But because it's a dinosaur and it's not daddy, that's a different, it's a distance thing. And Mm. then over time, what's curious is that the kids often buy that I'm completely believing their play. So it's quite cute that often they'll kind of, towards the end of a session or something, they'll go, you do realise the dinosaur was dad, right? <laughs> and I'll kind of go, yeah, yeah, like I was on top of that. Or they'll go, it's all pretend, you don't have to worry. And they reassure me that mm. the play that we had was, was okay they've got their own ways of being able to sit with it. They've been doing that. They know how to regulate mm. themselves. So is
1: that kind of what I was talking about before, which is trusting mm. patients? Yeah. You know, we're, we're not the ones, we're facilitating them fixing themselves. Exactly. We're not the one fixing them.
0: No, we're not the one who comes in and knows how to sort out their life. Nope. When they haven't been able to handle things. We're not life coaches, right? No.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it and them. I
0: think the tricky thing for parents is that I'll often be asked, why is it that you just play, in inverted commas, yeah. with with my kid? Or if I ask them to come in for a session where the three of us play together, or the four of us, they'll often be quite concerned about that because they'll kind of go, no, but we're here to talk about the serious things. And then I have to explain to them, well, this is the way kids convey the serious things. They draw a picture They act it out Mm. They make up a song Whatever it might be That's the way they process And we need to give them space to do that yeah. Like and it, it's necessary for their brain development, for their emotional stuff, for their connection with you.
1: Yeah, but like All of it. but like it, it, it's like it's like nourishing. Mm. I think is probably the, yeah. the way I would think about it. Yeah. And I, like and I think with the oncology work I do, I think I was talking about it quite dryly before, but the providing a space for people to just talk mm. about what the fuck's going on yeah. for them is just so powerful. Because th- they often haven't had that. No, like and, I th- and I not think
0: without someone reacting to what's going on, like a family member or something getting upset or responding
1: in. is task-focused. Yeah. They're busy. Yeah. Oh, you've got pain, pain relief. Mm. Do this, do this. That's yeah. their role. Yeah, they're not um,
0: sitting with it. Some of them will. Sometimes, but, but, yeah. but
1: I think over time I've learned to be, have a lightness in touch mm. that I didn't have previously.
0: Yeah, because it's interesting what people will bring up of their own accord without you having to ask yeah. too many questions or whatever. If you give them that space, stuff comes to the surface. And it's the same with kids. They don't often have, especially if their family situation is tricky, they don't often have an adult sit with them for an hour and just focus on them.
1: Nope.
0: And be okay with being silly and, you know, trying on whatever costume they've got or whatever it might be.
1: The the difficulty, like I'm always curious about, is the difficult to engage child, teenagers. So the one I am thinking about is children that I know who don't talk.
0: Mm. Yep. Right. I oh, love those oh, I, ones. <laughs>
1: yeah, I've seen you do your magic on them. <laughs> I guess like what's the – I don't even know what the question is. Like I guess what's like, I think,
0: What's the trick? Well, yeah, what's but, the approach?
1: Yeah, well, I think I think it's more understanding the the way you break that down mm. is what I'm interested in because yeah. I don't think it's this one trick.
0: No, I think the main thing is being different to the adult, other adults that they've had contact with. So often, when a kid isn't speaking, then everybody else sort of compensates to try and draw them out, or they ignore them. Those are kind of the two, the two things. They kind of, you know, at school they tend not to have any negative school reports or things like that because they fly under the radar. Mm. The teacher assumes they're just quiet things like that. It's only once they get older and they're expected to participate more that then someone usually will sort of go, hang on a minute, I haven't heard them do a talk in class or answer a question or whatever it might be. But our natural response when you see a a shy kid or a kid who's not speaking, particularly in a group or with other kids, is to try and draw them out. Mm -hmm. It's to get on their level, be enthusiastic to see them, offer them to be part of a game, stuff like that. And what my general approach is most of the time is parallel play so I will play something or I will do something in the same space as them Mm. but I won't look at them I won't interact I'll say hi when they arrive but I won't ask them questions or stuff like that the most I might ask is hey can you pass me that crayon or something like that just giving them the space Mm. and usually what happens because usually they look quite confused of hang on a minute why aren't you trying to draw me out they said I was coming here to speak to you and you're just sitting there drawing. Mm. And then after a while, usually they'll bring something up. So recently I had, I had a child do just that. He hid in my office and I every now and then pretended to lose the ball that I was playing with under the chair that he was under and the ball would come back out and I'd look surprised that the ball had reappeared mm. and then kept on playing until eventually he came out from under the chair and told me about what was going on. Mm. But I think it was giving the patience in the space Mm. and not being someone who overwhelmed them Mm. because often it's an anxiety it's an anxiety thing it comes from a place of being uncertain and control and And like i can just be quiet i can just i don't have to share what's going on i can just yeah yeah be contained
1: yeah because i mean i think like i think people want to talk about stuff they've Mm. got yeah a lot of the time yeah they might not there'll be dissonance about Mm. it i guess so what i mean by that is that There'll be a part of them that don't, won't want to talk about being afraid yeah. or won't want to talk about being scared of dying or, yeah. or the difficult emotions that they have. Yeah. But there's another part that does. Yeah. And I think there's a um, psychological ploy. The, the, the way that you kind of work with that is mm. you provide them with an avenue where they dip their toe in the water, mm. where, they, where they have a go, where they, where they, they want to do it. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Um, and providing some way of them being able to do that. Yeah. I remember working... When I used to work in a school, we did a classroom project. And there were two girls who were, had selective mutism and didn't speak at all at school. And they submitted a video for the project. I'd never heard them speak. I'd been working at the school for a couple of years. And they gave me a video and said they didn't want anybody else to see it. But it was just a video that they wanted to... They sort of wrote me a note saying mm. it's just for you. And I watched it and it was this riotous, hilarious, like screams of laughter, all of this sort of stuff in this video. It was a puppet show and I'd never heard their voice in person, but that was a safe way for them to communicate with me. And then after that, they were then able to talk to me. Mm. But it was this thing of testing me out a bit yeah. and giving giving it to me in a in a bit yeah. that wasn't with them present. Yeah. And that's fine. Like I'm that and works. Yeah. And it's interesting
1: yeah. when patients who do that give you mm. you know a patient give me a CD. Mm. and I I was like, What? Like you're not yeah. meant to give me a gift. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> And he's like it's like I thought we could. You could listen to it. And we could talk about it. Mm, yep. The music, like it was just music. Yeah, right? yeah. I've um, had
0: someone recommend a playlist. Yeah, and go, like this is important. This is
1: before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, burning a disc was a big deal. The, yeah, uh, well,
0: absolutely. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, seriously.
1: <laughs> the um, so it's. I mean, that's quite interesting. Hmm. What's a pet peeve about your job?
0: <laughs> it can be quite frustrating when you're working with different people. So, say you're working with a kid, and then siblings and then family whatever it can be frustrating when one person's on board and ready to work on things and then the rest of the system isn't or there are other people who aren't quite aren't quite there yet so often what what i see is that and this happens in family systems whether there's a kid or not is that one person is designated the problem like that that's the thing that we need to fix and if we could just solve little billy then everything would run smoothly and often Little Billy's is actually a symptom of everything that's going on. Yeah. And so that sort of stuff can be frustrating of kind of going, no, we actually all need to work on this. I can't just work with him on my own. Yeah. This isn't going to magically solve things. We need to get everyone on board. It's a bit of a dance, getting everyone sorted at the same time yeah, and on the same page. Not very, very When it does, I get very excited and have to sort of contain my excitement. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? What's a pet peeve?
1: Good question. I think probably a little bit about probably 50 50 between having people who you want to work with more mm-hmm. and they've finished their treatment and they themselves want to move out of the system mm-hmm. or practically they can't keep attending the hospital. People would be happy to drive them in for ongoing chemo,
0: but not for but psychology.
1: Psychology because things are changing, blah, blah, blah. I get a bit frustrated with that. And I think probably the other one is that when I can see someone who's in a lot of in, – in a really difficult spot emotionally and is not wanting to engage mm. and, you know, I mean, I think you, you develop a pretty thick skin around some of that mm. but you do – there are some people where you're like, man, if I can yeah. just have you for a couple of sessions. Yeah, we'd get but, somewhere. You know, I think you'd be – maybe you'd be in a much better spot. Mm. I mean, maybe that's a bit of arrogance on my part but – you know, it's really but
0: sometimes you get that vibe of someone being right on the edge of being ready to work on something or, and what that would mean for them oh, or no, right, on the, right
1: on the edge of it. Like, like you're in a real real tell spot and mm. it's like you need to just talk for a bit. Yeah. And I know it's going to be hard.
0: Yeah, but, but you just but need, like to like
1: you need to um, crack it open a bit. You, know, you might get a patient who is almost in tears in, in their assessment session mm. and containing themselves. But when you give them a distress questionnaire, it's all zeros. Yeah. yeah. And their
0: defenses are so the Their defenses are so up. high. Yeah. And
1: I, I used to sort of think, oh, you know, if I was a better clinician, mm. but I think, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's always ways to improve and, and, you know, some situations work better than others, blah, blah, blah. But I think more often than not, it's about the patient. Mm. And it's not always about.
0: Yeah. It's about where things are at at that yeah, time.
1: So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So I think, I think that. that, I think that That's what I struggle with. Mm. It's like, oh, come on, man. (laughs) Like I could do something here. Yeah. And I think also the, the difficulty of a patient navigating attending psychology amidst Uh, i was admitted for infection or and i was really really sick or Mm. i had a pain crisis or got all these appointments at a different hospital that i have to attend yeah Yeah, that gets in the way when we're doing their clinical training and they're like Mm. oh you know these patients attended for 12 12 sessions of group weekly i'm like oh my god how does that happen like amazing yeah (laughs)
0: like (laughs) yeah you
1: know yeah yeah that doesn't happen in my world
0: no what about the flip side what keeps you going
1: I just find it really interesting I really like people Yeah And I like the chess game Yeah I, I Like I like trying to figure out what's going on mm. And I like the application of theory into into it mm. And you know I think psychology I, I find You know I think it's a craft Yeah And I think that that's The more I do it The more interesting that I find that, mm. that component to it
0: The nuances of it
1: Yeah mm. and And you know being in a place where I'm much more comfortable and confident with mm. what I do, you know, I think it's it's really enjoyable. Yeah. You kind of see that go. Mm. What about you?
0: Um, the first thing that comes to mind is that kids are weird. Yeah. And I quite like that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like the surprising weirdness of kids. And then I think I like, you know, some of the flip side of that thing of needing to act quickly to deflect where someone's going is the times when that works or the times when you can see someone go from being in a real sort of stuck position or being dissociating all of the time or things like that to actually being able to focus at school or be able to, you know, have friendships for the first time or things like that is really powerful, being able to be a part of that. Mm. And just how quickly kids can change. It can take a lot to get to the point where something will change and then it's like a switch flicks Mm. and they get it. And they mm. kind of go, okay, I'm going to do this thing differently. Yeah. So, do you get,
1: do you get much fun. feedback from external people? Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Which is always lovely.
1: It's really, like, it's I, helpful. Yeah. Like, it's really, really interesting. You don't get it a lot, but you know, every now and then, oh, you'll get a doctor. Mm. Oh, one doctor introduced me to like someone extremely senior in the cancer service mm. by saying, oh, you know, Hunter hunt saved my skin with this patient. <laughs> you know, something, like, something yeah. like, whoa. Yeah. Or like driving out of the hospital and this, you know, oncologist, you know, yells out, oh, I just sent you another one because you fixed up the yeah. person, you know, that kind of.
0: Well, that's often when it comes up. It's when they're sending you someone else. Yeah. And, yeah. I, think, and
1: I think that that's really interesting because mm. particularly when you work with oncologists who – they are very skilled or a lot of them mm. are very skilled psychosocially and when they can't do something and you can yeah they're extremely they're like yeah right yeah. right on and yeah you're like, oh, is so yeah
0: funny. yeah that kind of stuff is, so. is enjoyable yeah mm. so should we leave it there yes so it's
1: probably a bit of a navel gaze mm. but we hope the those of you who have been interested with about psych oncology and child psychology found that interesting i certainly mm always find interesting yeah. just to talk about the nuts and bolts of like absolutely coming up coming up soon there'll be some interviews mm. hitting your way uh, just keep an eye out on your podcast feed
0: and just before we finish up as always the reminder to rate and review the show it helps people find us
1: or tell someone about the show either through social media or just by word of mouth then that's great or if you want to send us some feedback to shrinkspod at gmail.com or on twitter up and uh, yeah
0: we'll see you soon see you bye bye